This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with Rachel Timothy. She has an incredible, incredible, inspiring story. We're going to talk about that today. She's the author of Open Blind Eyes, and she is the founder of Stop Suffering Organization. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for being patient. I know we had to reschedule a couple of times. I've been traveling. We were looking for venues for the next Cause Fest, and... Uh, we're, I think we're close, <laughs> but uh, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it's super, super exciting. Yeah, then we'll definitely have to have you speak at the next one for sure. That sounds so, great. Awesome. So let's start with, uh, yeah, I, I guess wherever you want to start for my audience who is not familiar with your journey and yeah. Uh, yeah, a little of your background. So I think, especially with Sound of Freedom coming out recently, there's been a lot of talk now and awareness, which I'm super grateful for about trafficking, but it still feels like so much of the talk is geared around international trafficking. Right. And there's too much left out about what goes on here in the United States. And so I feel led and called to tell my story for that reason, to help protect other kids, because I mean, in, in many ways, my story is quote unquote, unbelievable, but my type of trafficking that I experienced happens way, way, way more than any other type of trafficking. Um, it happens just right underneath our nose in our own backyards. And so, yeah, I'll just start with sharing where it all began for me. And um, yeah, so for me, it started when I was nine years old. When I was nine, my family moved to a new town. My dad was a pastor, so I was a preacher's kid. And the town that we moved to was actually a village. It was very little, like 400, 500 people. But it had a grade school. It had a high school, a couple churches. Like, that was it. And so everybody knew everybody. And I remember I was going into the fourth grade, and I was excited about the move. I was excited about this new school. Um, Going in, I was like every other kid, nervous about making friends. Um, and I remember not too long into the school year, we were walking to the lunchroom and I got called out of line by a teacher and the teacher was somebody that I knew of, but I had never talked to before. And he was the other fourth grade teacher, not mine. There was two in the school. He was not mine, but the other one. And he was the junior high girls basketball coach. So this grade school was a K through eight. So he coached the fifth through eighth grade girls basketball. And I I already kind of knew he was just known as being a good guy. 
plus he's a teacher. So you assume all teachers are good. And um, so he called me out of line and I went over at first wondering if I'd done something wrong. But uh, he had a big smile on his face and he said, you know, I'm so excited that you and your family have moved here. Um, I've heard that your brothers, I had two older brothers, that they're really good athletes. Um, he knew that my first cousin was a basketball all-star. He knew my extended family. He knew where we moved to. He knew a lot about me before we had even had this first conversation. And he seemed just super excited that I was going to be there and wanted to know if I'd play basketball and if he'd be my coach and that sort of thing. And I remember going home and saying, Mom, Dad, you'll never guess, but the girls basketball coach is super excited that I'm here. My passion at that point in my life was basketball. And so he tugged on that part of my heart. And I remember not long after that, I was in my classroom and a knock came at the door and it was a little girl from the other fourth grade class. And she had a note asking if I could go over there to talk with the teacher. and. Um, with my future coach. And I my teacher allowed me to and so I went over there and I sat behind his desk and we talked and talked about basketball and my dreams and um just all that my heart desired. And what I realize now is all of that was him grooming me to feel comfortable with him, um to feel safe, to feel like he cared about me. I mean, he would say things like, you know, you're going to be a WNBA star. You know, don't forget little old me when you become big and um, just made me feel special. I mean, getting out of out of class anyway makes you feel special. You know, mm-hmm. like if you get out of class, like that's a big deal. And he would sure. have me go to his class often. And uh, I don't know, there was just something about the fact that he I, I feel like the grooming process started even before our very first interaction, I feel like the homework that he did on me prior to us even being in contact was part of the grooming process. I feel like the way that he got the community to feel like he was trusted and he was an elder of a church, he was a part of a Christian quartet. I mean, everybody saw him as good. And so, you know, I think all of that was part of the grooming process. And then I continued to go to his class several times. Um, It went from him talking about basketball to then talking about my body. And he began to like feel my muscles and, you know, talk to me about making them stronger for basketball. Um, I remember the first time he he had his hand on my back and then went up and under my shirt touched my chest. And I remember I jumped and tears immediately filled my eyes. And because I knew it was wrong. And he said, whoa, 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 you know, that was an accident. Why are you acting like a baby? And I remember thinking, oh, of course, it's an accident. You know, why am I acting like a baby? Because he's safe in my eyes. And so, you know, at that point, that's kind of when he started to talk about the secrets, um, started to say, like, you know, you can't tell anybody about you and I, or he'll lose his job, he'll lose his wife. And I didn't want to hurt him. I had grown to care about him. And he did all of that on purpose. 
And so um, there was one time I was in his classroom and he had brought one of his yearbooks from when he was younger. And it was um, when he was approximately my age. And I remember him saying, uh, if we were the same age, would you be my girlfriend? And I said, yes. And it was as if in that point, we basically became like a girlfriend, boyfriend in both of our eyes. And if you asked my classmates, they would have said, yeah, we knew you guys were boyfriend, girlfriend. Like it was weirdly known. And uh, I have found out since all of this, like fast forward to just about a year ago, a teacher did come to me and say, I walked in when you were nine sitting on and you were sitting on his lap behind his desk in the dark. And she said, I immediately went to the superintendent. I told him and the superintendent said, you don't need to worry about that. He's safe. So there were people that made some comments, but nothing was ever done about it. Right. Um, He had showed me that yearbook and then he got to talking to me about ways that I could come over to his house. So he only lived a couple houses down from me. And so our plan was um, I would take that yearbook home and I would tell my mom, hey, I need to return this book to my coach on Saturday. And so I asked and mom said that was fine. And so I went over to his house on a Saturday. And I remember that first time I was there, it was fine. Like he gave me a tour of the house and was like goofy and kind of flirtatious. And he got me a snack and he took me to his little music room and um, was trying to get me to sing and just be silly. And uh, nothing bad happened. But we started to kind of devise other plans for me to go to his house. And there'd be times I'd go to a a neighborhood friend's house and I'd leave early and walk to his house. Or I'd be riding my bike around this little village and I would stop in at his house. One time when I was there, um, he started talking to me about an idea where we could make money. And for me, it was like I could get my parents a Christmas gift and we could do, you know, neat things for them. And um, he pulled out an envelope of pictures of kids and, um, you know, said, you're more beautiful than any of these kids. You know, if we take pictures, we can make some money. And I said, "Okay." And so we went back to his bedroom and sitting on his dresser were three disposable cameras And he just took silly pictures of me acting like a goofy photographer. Um, But not long after that, I was back in his classroom and I remember him saying, you know, the pictures, they turned out good, but they could be better. And I didn't know what that meant. And so um, one of the next times that I was at his house, he pulled out an envelope of pictures, but this time the kids didn't have any clothes on. And I think he saw the expression on my face and he immediately went into, well, this is just the beautiful way that God made them. Like it's just showing the beauty of God. There's nothing wrong with it. Mind you, I mean, I'm a preacher's kid and I love God. And so he used not only my love for basketball, but also my love for God. And I trusted him. You know, he was an elder of a church. You obey your elders, all those things. And so I agreed to it and we went in his bedroom and he took pictures. And I remember him not being goofy and funny, but very serious. And it scared me because I hadn't seen a serious side of him before. But I was actually the one who felt 
I guess, convicted would be the word. Cause I remember going to him and saying, I didn't feel right about it. Mm-hmm. And him saying, but it was your idea. And then me wondering, was it my idea? Like, you know, it's that gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So not long after that, I was at his house another time. And this time he was not there alone. And uh, when I was taken back to his bedroom, his brother was actually standing in the corner with a video camera. And it was at that point where my coach taught me what making love was. And it was all videotaped. And I remember when it was over, he said, the Bible says that the two become one and I belonged to him. And I mean, he gave me things like make sure you throw your underwear away if there's blood in them. Don't let your mom see stuff like that. I remember being like feeling darkness come over me in a very drastic way at that point and having absolutely nobody to talk to but him. And when I would talk to him about it, he would either act like, you know, there's nothing to talk about. And so, I mean, for the most part, I started to just disassociate. I would only remember the good parts of him and not the bad parts. And I just wanted to be special. I wanted to be liked by him. And I didn't remember a lot of the abuse, the sexual abuse until many years later, because I had disassociated from the pain. Um, I remember having, uh, so then moving forward to my fifth grade year, I'm a little bit older at this point and I am on his basketball team. And there had been another time at his house that I remember another person coming and him uh, forcing me to make love to that person and me actually fighting on that one and obviously not winning. But now I'm in fifth grade and I'm on his basketball team. And there was a point where he called me to talk to him at the very beginning of school one day. And he said, hey, I got great news. You're going to get to practice up with the high school today instead of practicing here. And so I was super excited. After school, I got ready and he said, there's a car out back. Just go get in that car and they'll take you to the high school. And so when I walked out back, there stood his brother. And I knew at that point, okay, I'm not going to, to the high school. And I shut down and his brother was the scary one. Like my coach was kind of, well, he's the groomer. He's the one that acts, you know, really kind. And the brother was just downright mean. And so he told me to get on the floorboard of the car and lay down face down so that I can't see where we're going. And it didn't take us long to get to wherever we were going, but we were somewhere in the country. I mean, because it doesn't take you long to get out of the village. And uh, it was this country white house and I was taken inside and I was sold repeatedly. And then I was taken back to the grade school about the time that um, practice was over. And I went to the bathroom and I cleaned myself up and I acted like everything was fine. I turned it all just right back on. And I remember classmates and teammates being jealous that I got to go practice with the high school because, you know, they didn't know. And and honestly, I played it off as well. Um, But this went on throughout my fifth and sixth grade year. And what I have learned since like working with the FBI as I got older and kind of sharing with them my story, those country brothels are everywhere. And, you know, they're hidden like a normal house. So this house was 
set up. It had a living room. It had a kitchen, um, but it wasn't lived in. Nobody lived there. And so um, that went on a couple years. And I really don't know why it stopped after my sixth grade year, except maybe because I was becoming a more looking like a woman instead of a child. I don't really know what stopped it. Um, my sixth grade year uh, is when I started to exhibit a lot of signs of trauma, started cutting. I started having suicidal thoughts and suicidal attempts. I was told that I was a preacher's kid seeking attention and that nothing was wrong. Um, my seventh grade year, I was having, I, I didn't know what flashbacks were, but I w kept having these flashes in my mind of a different man standing over me. And then I would have nightmares and nothing that really made sense. And so when I tried to talk to my friends, like I knew enough to know I had been raped, but I couldn't form exactly how it happened, where it happened, nothing. And so I remember trying to explain it. And I think that's one thing we got to remember when it comes to our kids. We expect them to tell us what happened, you know, from A to Z, and they can't. They're not going to be able to. The, your mind as a child is not going to be able to process all of that and then verbally express it to somebody. And so, you know, I told my friends, my friends told the teacher, teacher told the principal, principal called my mom. And I remember being taken home and being sat down on her bed and her saying, this is what was said. And I said, yeah. And she said, you're lying. And I said, no, mom, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. You're lying. And I said, no, I'm really not. And she said, yes, you are. You're lying. And I said, fine, I'm lying. And she went and told my dad she made it all up. Um, I had to go and apologize to everybody involved, the school, uh, my friends and their parents. And I even had to go to one of the men who had actually raped me to his house, sit in his living room and apologize for mentioning him. And he just sat there and cried like, I can't believe you would say this about me. Uh, I pretty well at that point, it was like, I'm never talking about any of this again. Something must be wrong with me. Um, I heard that a lot, that it was just something was wrong with me. It wasn't real. And so I stuffed it. Um, my eighth grade year, there was one last encounter with my coach where um, my parents allowed me to go with him to a school outside of town about 40 minutes away to a basketball game. And it was basically a date. I mean, he came, he picked me up and I got in the car and we drove to the basketball game and we watched it. And I remember we only stayed till halftime and we listened to the, the rest of the game on the radio so I could tell my parents what happened in the game. But he pulled over onto a country road and raped me in the back of his car on the way home. And that was pretty much the last time that that was the last time that he had any kind of encounter with me. And then after that, um, I we had moved to a different house on the outskirts of the village, which had me going to a different high school, which was not in close vicinity to him. And so there was just, I didn't see him very much. And there was no walking to his house, you know, it was too far. And so our relationship ended. 
which was confusing because here this man had said, I own you. I, you know, you are mine. And now he's gone. And I, I mess, I was struggling with flashbacks and all sorts of things still, but my coping skill at that point just became basketball. And I dove into that and ended up being pretty good. And I got a college scholarship and I got, you know, good grades. I was not what you would typically see as a trafficking survivor. You know, like I, I was functional. I went on to college. I got my bachelor's degree, all these things. I got married. Um, I had a couple kids and I remember then in 2014, um, it was January. I had two kids at this point and I was scrolling through Facebook and I came across a post where one of my friends had posted about her sixth grade daughter painting this beautiful picture. And underneath it, she said, and thank you to my coach for staying with her daughter after school to work on the painting. And at that point, like my whole world fell apart, like flashback after flashback, like all these pieces that I had suppressed and not remembered and dissociated from, like just flooded my mind. And I ran to the bathroom and I puked and I puked. And it was like I knew it all, but I had never actually allowed myself to go there. Um, I had still up until that point convinced myself he was a good man. I asked him to sing at my wedding. Like I had convinced myself he was good and he was safe. And then here, all these memories come flooding back. And my husband came home from work and I had to explain to him, okay, like this is the reality of my past. And um, I started cutting again. Um, I started having an eating disorder. We got me into counseling and I began trying to just process things. But my main concern was to make sure that other little girl was okay, because I know what happens when you're alone with him. And I was fearful for her. And so uh, we ended up doing what we believed was an anonymous tip to DCS. Um, I later found out it was not anonymous, but um, they went into the school and of course they asked him, if he's hurt anybody, just stupidest <laughs> criminal. Thing. If he's a criminal, yeah, yes, yes. Um, but I have since become good friends with that little girl. Of course, she's much older now. But um, I have asked her, like, what? How did they interview you? What did they say? And she said, all they asked me was, "Has anybody ever hurt you?" And she said, "No." And I know when I was in sixth grade, if somebody would have asked me, I would have said no. Right. I for sure, would not have told on him. Right, And so I didn't feel like it did any good. Um, and bless her heart, you know, she now has flashbacks and she has things from what and doesn't have full memory of everything that went on with him. But um, at that point, the DCS report ended. It was, un, you know, unfounded. And uh, I kind of felt like I'd done everything I could. And about two weeks after that, I was in my backyard with my two kids and he walked into my yard and I froze. And like, I don't know how to explain, but, you know, you always wonder, what am I going to be like in certain situations? And you really don't know until you're in it. Right. Um, but what I realized was because I had not had the healing that I needed yet, I went right back to being that nine-year-old little girl. And I froze and he walked up and he picked up my little girl and he walked into my house and I grabbed my son and we went into the house and thank God he put my little girl down. But then he 
kind of walked me up against the wall and threatened all of us saying, you know, I know people who will hurt you if you talk about this anymore. And I knew he did. I knew he did know people. And so I, again, like this whole next part of, of my experiences is really hard for a lot of people to understand. And there's, there's parts of me that's like, I don't even want to share it with people because it is so hard for people to understand, but it is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes to show how un- unhealed trauma affects somebody. Sure. But I just remember going right back to these are my two separate worlds and I'm not going to tell anybody what happened. And so I didn't tell my husband that this man came to my house. Um, and I didn't tell my husband that he showed up a, a couple other times and beat the crap out of me one time. And then the third time he raped me and his brother was there, too. And I didn't tell my husband those things until that rape happened. And even then I was scared to tell him. And I remember for whatever reason, by the grace of God, I picked up my phone and I texted my counselor and I said, I was just raped. And she tried to call me. And when you are in that point of trauma, like the words don't come out. Like there's no way I could have been on a phone call and said anything to you. Like there were, it was stuck in my throat. And so I just, I kept hanging up on her and she finally texted and said, come to my office. And so I did. And I was able to work through and kind of tell her what happened. And she's like, well, there's three things we have to do. We have to tell your husband. We have to take you to the hospital and we have to tell the police. And I didn't want to do all three. Like I was terrified. I was certain my husband would leave, you know, I, and then I, I even had the fear because of things said to me um, that I would be the one to go to jail if I ever pursued justice. And so I, I didn't want to do any of it. I didn't trust anybody. Right. And so eventually she convinced me to tell my husband and we did. And then at that point, like there was no choice. We were going to the hospital. Like he was certain on that. So we went to the hospital and we had a rape kit done and um, they had the police come and they gave, they interviewed me. And then they asked for the names of the two people who had raped me. And I couldn't give them the names. And my husband said, you either give them the names or we have to move. And I said, then I guess we have to move because I was that scared. So within two weeks, my husband got a new job and we were out of there. And I had so much hatred towards myself and shame. And I mean, I just spiraled really bad at that point. Felt extremely dirty. Um, We ended up. I mean, he had to do a couple different jobs and and about nine months after that, he ended up getting a different job and it was still about 30 or 40 minutes away from where my coach lived, which we thought would be far enough. Um, But after living there for about three or four months, my coach showed up at that house and this time he had tears in his eyes and he was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what was wrong with me. I didn't want to do any of those things. I'm a part of a ring that I can't get out of and I need help. He's like, I want to be a good guy. And still, I believed him. And he said, I just need your help. I just need a little bit of money. And so he said, tonight, there's going to be a truck that comes. If you could just go this one time, and then I'll be able to get out and I can be a good Christian man and all those types of things. And he said, when they rev their engine, you'll know it's time they're out there. And so I did. I left. And 
I got in that truck and I was taken to a hotel and I was raped for about three hours. And then I went back home and I showered and I got in bed with my husband and tried to act like everything was fine. I went right back to what I knew as a child. I went and I don't know how to, I mean, none of it makes sense. The trauma doesn't make sense. And I just, that was what I felt like I was worth as well. Like I didn't feel like I was worth anything else. And so I, once I went that one time, there was no getting out of it. And it didn't happen every night by any means. Um, you know, there'd be times when like, if you talk to my husband now, like, did you notice that she wasn't in bed with you? And yeah, I assumed she was in bed with one of the kids. Like I didn't know she was out being trafficked. Like it, it just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it because again, it's hard to explain, but it is the reality of what it was like. And I saw so many other women involved and I'm, it's not, it's not like sex between you and your husband. It's awful. It is terrible. And it's not wanted. And so, you know, men who were buying sex, it was as if they thought that's what we wanted. It's not at all. Um, that went on for about a year. And uh, there was a point then where at church, I was still going to church. I mean, I lost a ton of weight. I was, I would wear long sleeves and long pants during even the hot summer days because I had bruises and cuts that I didn't want anybody to see. My husband assumed I was depressed because of the rape that he did know about a year or so before that. And so I just was not doing well at all. And there was an elder's wife at church and something about her felt safe. And I remember texting her one day and I just said, hey, will you pray for me? I, I have an eating disorder. And she was like, yes, absolutely. I'll pray for you. And I remember she, anytime I'd see her, she's like, how are you doing? You know, I, I've been praying for you. It just made me feel good and safe. And so I would text her something else, just little bits at a time to see if she could handle what I was sharing. And I remember one time I I said, uh, what would you have done if uh, one of your daughters had said, if somebody had hurt them? And I remember her response was nothing like my mom's. And she figured out at that point that um, I had probably been abused at some point as a kid. And so she dropped everything and, and came to my house and picked me up and took me for a drive and, you know, tried to make me feel comfortable and safe. And I remember sharing with her little bits about my childhood. And I remember at one point she said, you know, men, they, they typically do this for power. And I said, yeah, or money. And I remember her her jaw dropped open and she had no idea. Like she knew trafficking existed in Cambodia, you know, not here, not in her backyard. Right. And I remember her saying, like, you've told the right person. This is not going like he's not going to get away with this. And at that point, she still didn't know that I was still stuck in that cycle with um, that entire ring until she started to see the bruises and the cuts. And then she confronted me and told my husband. And I remember when she walked in the door and I was like, hey, why are you here? And she said, your husband needs to know. And I freaked and I, I am a runner. When I get scared, I run. And I grabbed my keys and I took off running. And my husband grabbed me and held me to where I couldn't get out the door. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. And he had every reason 
to not understand and leave. And he took the time to understand and forever be grateful for that. Um, from that point, we decided, we as in they decided, but I knew it was the right thing, but we needed to file a police report. But again, I was terrified that I was going to be the one to go to jail. And so um, we we signed this police report. A police officer came over and helped us through it. Um, I ended up needing to go to the state police because of the level of abuse that I had been through. And um, I remember going there and being walked down this long hallway into this tiny room with two strange men with a video camera on me and, you know, supposed to tell them about my abuse. They need to change the system because it was awful. <laughs> right. It was traumatizing as, as well. <laughs> so um, after that, like they kind of gave us a heads up that they were, they were going all in with this and told us to find a place, a safe place to stay. And so we stayed with some friends and, um, I don't even remember however many days later, but we got word that the FBI had done a raid on my coach's house and his brother's house. They had busted in early one morning and took all of their devices, everything, VHS tapes, all of it. And uh, they took them into custody to question them. But there was nothing right out in the open evidence wise for them to keep them. And so they had to let them go home. And I remember when we got word of that, we were advised to go to the court and get an emergency restraining order. And so we did. And then um, two weeks after that, the two week restraining order was up. And so we needed to go back to get it extended to two years. And they had told me, you know, they the defendants, they can show up, but most likely they won't. Well, they did. And they brought their wives and they brought their pastors and their church family. And I was unable to even walk into the courtroom because I knew he was in there. But my what I was told was that whole side of the courtroom was filled with his church family supporting him. And so we ended up having to go in the judge's chambers and along with his lawyer and me without a lawyer, because I didn't think I needed one. Um, we ended up getting an order of protection, but no restraining order, which is slightly different in where I'm from. And so um, I ended up having several meetings with the FBI. They started to really look into this ring. Um, they followed bank accounts and were able to tell me like this ring based on following the money is humongous. Like it goes down to Mexico. And I mean, I knew it was big, but obviously I had no idea how big it was. And at one point, the FBI agent, she was amazing, loved her dearly. She said, uh, she said, I have to tell you this in analogies, but if we were going into your coach's house looking for candy, we found candy. So in other words, they were going in looking for child porn and they found it. And so she says, just a matter of time. It'll be a, you know, open check case, but we have to go through all of his devices before we can take him into custody. And so in the meantime, because of the ring and all that was a part of it, I still had men showing up at my house. And because I had this woman who in my book, I call her granny because everybody around there calls her granny. She doesn't look like an old granny. Let me tell you that. (laughs) I call her granny. 
um, she had taught me to defend myself. I mean, she told me, you turn on the video camera on your phone, you go out and you face them and you videotape them and tell them to get off your property. And I would do that. And I remember one time a guy came and he had a black whip in his back pocket. He dropped three condoms on the ground. Um, He had a bag full of things. And I walked out there with my video camera and um, I said, you need to get off my property. And he goes, I've already paid for you. And I said, I don't know who you paid, but it wasn't me. And you need to get off this property. And um, about that time, I had messaged granny that somebody was coming. And so she was able to stop him in the road. She like parked perpendicular and she got his license. She said, give me your name and give me the website that she's for sale on. And he did. And so when the police finally showed up, we showed them the footage. We gave them the license, the website. And we then found out about two weeks later that the state's attorney said, I'm not going to look into any of it. So it was all. I have no idea. I was eventually told that the state's attorney will not look into anything that has my name on it. And so about that time, also, I get word that um, the evidence that they had from my coach's house was gone. It was not there anymore. And nobody can explain to me a good reason as to why. And even the lady who had originally told it to me, she's like, this has never happened before. I don't understand it. But without that evidence, he got to go back to teaching and coaching. And I remember at, at, at that point, I had no help from police. Like once that happened, nobody would help me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And things escalated to where we were just completely unsafe. And before long, we had to move completely. And we moved out of state. And honestly, what, that's what state were you in? I was in Illinois. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And so that's what brought us to Tennessee a couple years ago. And, um, I mean, there's a lot more in the midst of all of that, but that's the gist of it. And it's amazing how now that I feel safe, the healing that I can do. And it, it's been a breath of fresh air. My kids feel safe. I feel safe. I'm pursuing because I was not able to do anything criminally. I am pursuing a lawsuit in hopes that maybe that will lead to something criminally. Um, but I know these guys are still operating and I I can't. I can't allow that if I can stop it. So, wow. Well, firstly, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, your vulnerability, your willingness to share, and your willingness to fight, fight for your justice, for your to protect your children and for others. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so, I. I, there's there's so many questions. I, I guess firstly, like what are your thoughts on there's so many different types of trafficking. There's so many different types of rings, right? And uh, you you described kind of, you know, a little bit about this, but when you say this is a massive ring, obviously for the FBI to get involved, what 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 does that mean? If it goes all the way down to Mexico, what how how does that work? Can you give a little bit of yeah, I don't know that I can give great detail because I'm sure. not operating in it. Right, um, right. I would from just what see, you've, yeah. Yeah, I would see the men show up. Um, I, you know, I do remember at times seeing little Mexicans. And, you know, it could be that 
children were being transferred and it wasn't just happening where it was. I don't know what they're doing, but I know the money laundering attached to the men that I saw continued all the way down to Mexico. Now, what... What I do find often is sometimes it's not even a ring as much as it is an individual who takes a child and exploits them through cameras and, you know, hurts them and and then puts it online and it's child porn like that's trafficking. And I think that happens a ton and we don't know about it. And, you know, it another piece of it is you can be trafficked and not even be touched. So like your child, for example, could be in their bedroom and they get tricked by a predator who claims to be 13 years old, just like them and another little girl. And hey, send me your picture. And oh, well, you're, you're, you know, that's super cool. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Oh, you got a sister. Well, if you don't send me a nude photo, I'll hurt your sister. And then the child's like, Oh no, you know, what do I do? So they send a nude photo. And then the man's like, well, if you don't X, Y, and Z, then I will tell your parents about what you're doing. And they're being trafficked without ever being touched. And the parents could be in the other room and have no idea. Right. Right. Of course. You talked a little bit about your your healing and how and you know that how that started really fully when you were able to move and feel safe. Uh, and I know you work with people on healing. Mm-hmm. What what does that look like? How can people heal? And yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I've done counseling all mm-hmm. these years. I was in counseling. Granny would not let me not go to counseling. <laughs> right. um, but I've also, when I met Denise Walsh. And so she's the co-founder with me in Stop Suffering in Silence. And Really, when she started to, I, th- I think part of the healing was I had Granny who listened and believed. But then I also had Denise who was like, okay, what's next? Like, yes, this sucks. This is terrible. But who are you? Like, let's figure out. Let's remember who that little girl was and what her dreams were and who she wants to be. And let's dive into that. And so it was really a combination of acknowledging my trauma but then also saying, I'm not going to let it define me and mm-hmm. doing the work that I needed to do to heal so I could, you know, empower other women and find purpose for my pain. And so stop suffering in silence as much as I want to say like, oh, we're helping all these people. Really, it has been such a blessing to me to get to find purpose for my pain and to get to go and speak and share my story and help other trauma survivors and do programs and write books and podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's such a blessing and I'm super grateful for it. Yeah, that's beautiful. What do you see when you're uh, working with other, uh, you know, trauma victims, trafficking victims, uh, both in terms of how they've processed their trauma or coped or, you know, what their mechanisms were and also their healing? Yeah. So I will say this, almost all of us have an eating disorder. That is a often a sign of trauma, um, which I mean, I'm not going to say 100%, but it is, it's pretty outstanding. Um, I also have found that majority of survivors have not been well received by churches. Um, There's been way too much of this, well, you just need to forgive. And you know, the person said they were sorry, and then they still allow the person in the church. Um, 
it's wrong and it infuriates mm-hmm. me and um, it leaves the victim feeling like it's their fault or they're the ones that have to leave. And there's been a feeling lot unsafe. of spiritual abuse huh? and unsafe. Yes. Unsafe. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, and I think churches get confused with this grace aspect of you forgive and you act like it didn't happen. No, pedophiles are not going to stop. And so you can't you can't ex- just accept an apology from a pedophile and assume it's never going to happen again because most likely it's happened a hundred times before then. Statistically, pedophiles hurt hundreds of kids, and so if you catch it one time, there's probably a whole lot more there. Right, right, and especially so, if there's money involved as well. Oh yes, hundred percent. And now with the way the internet is and. You know, I doing studies on all of this. The United States is number one in producing and distributing child porn out of the entire world. I've and heard so, that. And somehow yeah. I say, wow, every time because it's just astounding. Yeah, it is. It's infuriating. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I feel like it should be a battle that all of us are fighting. And I know not everybody's called to this battle, but. When I think of the children and and then the trauma that they face for the rest of their life, it is it's yeah. life changing. It is, and uh, you know I feel uh, obviously I feel like tremendous kind of compassion and empathy for the victim, but the reality is it's really affecting everyone because this is, you know, it's a un, it's an underbelly of a very dark um, web that you know, especially because there's money involved. That you know, there's a lot of. That there's a lot of different institutions and industries that are being pulled in from what I can see and from what I've heard. Yes, same, same. So, it, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like if we if we crack a small piece of it, maybe the whole thing would crumble. I don't know, but it's big. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on, have you seen the movie Sound of Freedom? I have not. Um, I'm actually speaking not. with, okay, I'm speaking with Tim Ballard uh, at an event that he's at uh, next month. Awesome. Um, but yeah, thank you. Um, but I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard a lot of, I, I'll just preface by saying I'm super grateful for the awareness. I mean, that, yes. you know, that everybody should be really grateful for. Um, it's, you know, clearly a really big problem and one that has been silenced for far too long. So, you know, I'm grateful for that, but I have heard kind of conflicting uh, thoughts on the movie itself and, uh, you know, the backstory behind it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I as well. And mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I'm just, I'm right there with you. I want the awareness. <laughs> And yeah. I want people's eyes opened to the reality sure. of all of this. Right. Um, and then, you know, I'll just share this, which I don't even know if it makes any sense. But there was a part of me that felt angry almost. It's like, you know, people going to the cinema to watch the horror of what you experienced. You right. know, it feels weird. And I sure. had to kind of process through that. But I mean, really, at the end of the day... I want people to know this horror exists. I want them. And if that's how we do it, if right. that's start a, revela- a revolution or whatever, then mm-hmm. go for it. Um, but there was some, con- I haven't seen it. And so right. I don't, I don't know everything, but sure. um, that was one thought I had when I'm like, Oh, everybody's going to the movies to watch trafficking. <laughs> <laughs> My dog's acting up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, yeah, no, I, I can imagine that f- for you, that would be a little bit weird, um, to put it mildly. 
sorry. I texted nope. my husband, help. Oh, no. <laughs> He'll come get the dog for me. Okay. I'll mute myself. You talk for a second. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I was just saying that I, I could imagine that would be, you know, really uncomfortable to think that people are going to watch um, really something that was so traumatic for you to personally experience. Um, but yeah, I'm really grateful for the awareness. I guess my concern with some of, I think, you know, I always try to think about, like, I think a lot of people, even when they are becoming aware of a problem, um, they want to do something, they don't know what to do. And, yeah. you know, they want to feel like there is some action they can take. And unfortunately, I've heard and I've, you know, from from what I've seen, there's unfortunately some organizations that purport to do one thing and it's kind of a front and what they're really doing is the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's very, very frustrating. It's really infuriating. And it's also really confusing because it leaves people demoralized and yes. really I, uh, helpless. I've, ex I've experienced it to a degree. And I will say with talking with law enforcement, they say, and of course, I don't I don't know that they know 100 percent, but that 20 percent of advocates are not safe. And so do not allow a victim that, you know, to go to somebody that you don't know, that you don't 100 percent trust, because so many trafficking survivors are going to get help and they're never seen again or their kids are never seen again. And they're put right back into the life. And so we have to be so careful who we use to get help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some signs? Like, a, I know you're saying not the, to make sure you really know the person, but as you explained with your story, right? Like somebody can be grooming and you feel like you know them, you can build the trust and the rapport. So do yeah. you do you have any thoughts on like signs that people can look for, both with okay. individuals as well as organizations? Yeah, well, I mean, I would hope for a good track record, like being able to go back and see other survivors they've helped and see where they're at and what they're doing. Um, and just literally, like, I think you can see the fruit of the ministry. You can see the fruit of the person. Sometimes it takes time with an individual if they're really, really good at grooming. Right. Um, but with an organization, hopefully they've been around long enough. You know, I feel like there's a lot of organizations and honestly, stop suffering in silence. We're only a year old. Mm -hmm. um, but some of these ones that are just popping up here and there and, you know, they're listening for the first time to somebody who is desperately wanting justice and hasn't been able to get justice. And so they run into their arms thinking, finally, right. you know, I would, I would really vet everybody by seeing a background and um, seeing other survivors that they've helped before I would trust them with anything. Right. Um, one of the individuals that I was helping it with a different organization at one point, um, let's see the little, the girl ran away. And it was was coaxed by traffickers and ran away. Mm -hmm. And um, her mom got on a Facebook group and was just asking, you know, for prayers, for help. You know, it was like a group of other parents whose children had ran away or whatever. And there was somebody who posed as an organization and they're like, let me help. I can get FBI right on this. Give me her name and where you think she is. And mm -hmm. the mom gave it to them. And then come to find out they weren't even a, an organization. Mm -hmm. And here she just gave all of her daughter's information to somebody. And so you just have to be, I know you're desperate. Right. You got to be smart, desperate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's a, not always easy. Just where people do just their things, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, you know, some people think that, I, I know you're working with the FBI and, you know, obviously you can reveal whatever you want to reveal, whatever you, you know, you can. I, I, it's obviously understood. Um, but some people say that, you know, they're concerned that they might not be able to trust some of the agencies, the FBI, the CIA, that they might be some of the biggest, you know, trafficking mm-hmm. entities. Well, I'm I'm probably a bit biased mm-hmm. since the FBI lost my evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, it, it was devastating. I mean, my, yeah. we wouldn't have had to move. We wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have been hurt as many times as I had been, you know, and I think of the impact of all of this on my kids had yes. they done a better job. And so there is a frustration there. Now, the FBI agent I worked with, she was incredible. And I know she was fighting for me. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I got a really good taste of the good apples and the bad apples, I guess. Right. And unfortunately, all it takes is one bad apple and it ruins, you know, a lot of cases. And so it, I guess that's the best explanation I can give is all it takes is one. And it, I have been told and whether or not this is real or not, but that every law enforcement has at least one. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, the probability, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. You're, you're dealing with people. They're not all going to be great. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which no, is unfortunate. It, I think blackmail works under the table a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's been a situation with my own criminal stuff that with these guys that I've tried to pursue. And I think blackmail has gotten involved and um, people end up covering up so that their own stuff doesn't come out. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it does seem like in uh, very high places, blackmail seems to be more rampant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how much do your children know and how do they feel about everything? So my oldest son, he's 12. Um, he knows more than the others. He knows mom was hurt when she was a little girl and that mom tried to pursue justice as an adult and that then we became unsafe. And I mean, he saw men showing up at the house. He saw us being followed he battles major anxiety. Um, and so he doesn't understand anything more than that. But I will say now that we're here and he feels safe and he knows mom's safe, he's flourishing. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, my next one is a, is a little girl and she's 10. So she's at that age that I was when all this started. And so we've had small conversations towards, you know, safety online, um, safety, you know, with other adults. And I explained to her because mommy was hurt by somebody who appeared safe and just conversations enough to where they they understand at their age level. One thing that I was able to convey to my son, I wanted him to know what a flashback was, because when I was young. I didn't know what that was. And I felt crazy. And so at one point, I just explained to him what a flashback was. And he said, I think I've had some of those. 
And he explained um, a time where he saw me beat up. And I didn't know that he had seen that, you know. And so it it's good to give them words to match what they're feeling or to match what they remember. Right. You don't want to coax them in any way. But if they don't have the words, they can't get it out and it stays trapped. Right. Yeah, of course. And then how old are you? You have four, right? I have four. So then <laughs> my next ones are eight and six and they don't know anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> and that, that might be good for a while. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think my six-year-old would tell the whole world because she's just, she's spunky and, you know, tells them our every move. So. Aww. So you said you have a master's. What did you get your master's in? I have a bachelor's. Um, oh, bachelor's. And, okay, yeah. Yep. I got my degree in special education. So okay. I taught a couple of years. Yeah. And you taught a couple of years in special mm-hmm. ed. Yep. What was that like? <laughs> With your background? I'm, I'm thinking, I know. Yeah. yeah. So, and mind you, at that point, I didn't have all these memories. And what I had learned, though, was the body keeps the score. I don't know if you've seen or read, read that the book. book. And I cried I, through it, like, like sobbed, like yes. full on sobbing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like taking pictures of every page and sending it to granny. Like, this is me. Like, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, But when I look back at that time, you know, I tried to have it all together and act like I had it all together. But I had so many different triggers and weird things that even like if you talk to the principal, now he's like, yeah, we knew something was going on. Like I just, I never felt safe. I never, I don't, I just kept to myself. Right. Um, even other male teachers made me nervous and I didn't really know why. Yeah. And so there was just a lot of things that I could look back on and be like, oh, that's why that's so hard. Like my body felt the anxiety, but my memory hadn't gotten there yet. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm curious about your, uh, like if you're work, cause you were working with kids and what that was like, you know, in terms of, uh, I don't know, just did anything trigger things for you? Did you feel overly protective? Were you anxious? I don't know. Um, I worked with high school kids, mm-hmm. so they weren't little, but, um, there was definitely a protectiveness. I remember, um, I had helped out with, um, a junior high basketball team at one point and a little girl said she was getting piano lessons from my coach. And I remember just not being able to breathe. And at that point, it didn't trigger anything, but I just couldn't breathe. I didn't know why. And um, so, it again, it just, it triggered things physically. Right. But not in my memory at that point. Right. The body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the, like your experience was... You had described a very small town and it was somebody who was very close, lived a few doors down. You saw routinely your coach, mentor. Um, Do you think that that's very common? Is it typically someone who is like within the community, the people that like feel safe as you had described him? Or is it typically, I mean, I'm sure there's all different kinds of cases, but you know, like what have you heard? Is that like... Yeah, so based on like some of the safe houses I've been a part of and all of the different survivors and then statistically, 
they say 94% of victims know the perpetrator. So it's not the stranger danger. It's somebody they know. And usually it's somebody that their parents trust. And whether or not the child does fully, if the parents trust this individual and believe good things about the individual, then the child doesn't feel like they have a voice in being able to say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention, there's a lot of times it's familial. And so there's kids whose parents are wanting drug money. I have a friend whose dad and drug dealer sold her in her basement on the weekends. She still went to church. She still went to school. Like nobody had any idea. Um, And and that's the thing with trafficking. Like you think it's like taken. You think somebody's taken and never seen again. But these kids go back to school. They're in our schools. They're in our churches and on our teams. And so um, it's usually somebody they know. Another situation that I have found often is brothers who are addicted to porn, hurting their younger sisters and doing it that way with exploitation and friends, Um, sometimes extended family during family get togethers is another one. Um, But it's it's always somebody, almost always somebody the child knows. Wow. What do you think can be done? I mean, it is, it, it's so covert and uh, it, it seems like such an entangled web that I, I don't think it, the solution is that simple. What, what are no, your thoughts on I don't think it is either. However, if it's talked about where kids, again, have ver- like words to be yeah. able to say, oh, that happened to me in my basement. Oh, like maybe then let's say they're having... Um, it's not just the good touch, bad touch talk at school. They're they're really having a discussion of what trafficking looks like, and and obviously to grade level. And um, but giving the kids a, a space to then say this is happening and have the words to be able to express it, because <clears throat> either they think they're the only one, or right. they think this is how everybody lives. Right. And when you find out that's not the case, then that child at least has the awareness to maybe speak out to a safe person. Right. Right. And you were talking about uh, your personal healing journey and working with others, and you know, it's you're dealing with the trauma. What What are some things you think are most effective? Because I I feel like for some people, talking is great, and you know, going through the memories like. You know, that can work. But for other people, they become re-traumatized and it's not necessarily the healing experience that you would hope for. So what what do you find to be most effective for people healing through the trauma? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's individual, not like it is the same. It is. Yeah. But I mean, as much as possible, getting it out. And so it's not like a festered wound inside of you. Uh, For me, like, yes, speaking helps, but writing really, really helps me. And what I've learned is it actually takes that memory and puts it into a processed part of your brain where it's no longer affecting you every moment of every day. Like you're not going to be as easily triggered by it because you have processed it moves somewhere else in your brain. Nice. Um, And then, but then there's also, you know, healing and being able to speak it out loud, almost like vomiting it up, getting it out. Right. Um, So that's healing. And then I think action steps and starting to take action toward the life you want, because trauma steals so much from you. And there's times when these trauma survivors feel like this is it. 
this is what my life's going to be like. I don't have any hope for anything else. And we want to be able to say, yes, you do. You got a long life ahead of you. This isn't going to be this way forever. It's a dark season, but it's going to get better. I promise you. Um, I remember having so many dark flashbacks, like terrible and just the pain, the physical pain of it and being reminded by a counselor, tell yourself this isn't going to this isn't going to kill you. You've not died from a flashback yet. <laughs> and truly, once I do go through a flashback, I do become stronger because it's like, oh, that's why I have this reaction to this thing. You know, like it acknowledges power. But also give yourself grace because. Working through trauma is one of the toughest things that you can do. And knowing that your body is responding to things you maybe don't even know yet, it's really hard to heal that. Right. Um, but giving yourself grace and time and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Not easy, but beautiful. Yeah. Oh, not easy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's why community, I think, helps too. Yeah. Um, we have our trauma group where we have several survivors working on the same steps together and when you can push your fellow trauma survivor and they can push you back and, mm -hmm. and towards the life that you said you wanted you right. know it helps you yeah absolutely so what what do you focus on just for the audience with your foundation with stop suffering in silence yeah so we want to well first of all we want to raise awareness and educate so we do go around and we speak and I share my story mm -hmm. which has been really incredible for me because I've got to hear then the responses from people. You know, like when you do a podcast, you don't always get to know yeah. like what their responses are. But I've had several people come up and say, you know, me too. And they had never said it to anybody before. I had an 80-year-old woman come up to me and she goes, dissociation. Like, I didn't know that's what I was doing when my dad came in the room when I was a kid. Nobody ever told like I didn't know. Now she was able to talk about it. Now she was able to go to get healing. And um, I've had one lady, she actually read my book and then she passed the book along to her friend who passed the book along to her daughter. And then the daughter contacted her mom back and said, mom, I need to tell you something. And it opened the door for that communication. And I think that is so key in us healing our country from this yuck is having <laughs> that open conversation. I love that. Heal the country from the yuck. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so speaking and raising awareness and encouraging all of that. And then um, we have trauma groups where we, I wrote a book called Reflecting Ownership. And really it just talks about taking back that ownership of your life that was stolen when you were an innocent child. Sure. And um, so we walk through our trauma survivors through that for about 12 weeks. And then we have another 12 week program where we are getting your life back. Like what's next? What lights your spark? What is your calling? Mm -hmm. And we help get them on their feet. And we've had survivors go back to college. We've had um, them get new jobs and be able to buy their first house and get a mm -hmm. car. Um, we have one lady who is um, decided to get a gastric bypass surgery. She's like, this is it. I'm doing it. I'm losing the weight. Like she wants to be healthy. She wants to take care of herself. Just they make these proud decisions that now they can start moving forward and feel good about themselves. Um, we do retreats with our survivors where we um, kind of pamper them a little bit mm -hmm. and um, take them horseback riding and do different adventures. But of course, we hone in on the healing experience. And 
like we have moments where we're releasing anger and we'll throw rocks, you know, into the pond or whatever, like the practice of releasing yeah. anger or whatever. Um, That's and then we so have- hard for some uh, trauma victims, uh, like yeah. just of all trauma, because I think... Uh, um, I think especially for women, just that's a, you know, part of it, I think is biological, but part of it is, is I think, sociological, cultural, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but women are not encouraged to embrace anger. And I think particularly if there's been trauma, because there is so much anger and uh, yeah, that can be really hard. So to to release that, though, it's so in, I always say anger is in many ways. I, I'm not encouraging people to just go and, you know, unleash wrath, uh, you know, but not recklessly anyway, but I think to, but anger in some ways is actually a much more productive emotion uh, than something like anxiety, sadness, depression, uh, yeah. which a lot of people who have trauma that hasn't been uh, processed, you know, it's much easier for them to default to that uh, mm. because they're still in a, uh, and this is not to be a, uh, you know, pejorative in any way. It's not. It's not a judgment, but I think yeah. they're they're still in the victim mentality. So it's much easier yeah. to default to that. Um, and so, yeah. But I think that embracing the anger and then, of course, releasing it is definitely in many ways productive to, and can help people to propel forward. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because yeah. when you release it, you make room for something good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. So you do. No, that was good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we do retreats. Um, One of the things we do while we're at the retreat is called a dream life dinner. And the survivors are supposed to come dressed and as if it's five years down the road. Oh, I love that. For example, one of the girls, she came with her college diploma and she's like, I just graduated college and I got this degree, you know, and her taking those steps then to act like she w- had done it made it to where within the month she signed up for college. And she's like, I now can see myself actually doing it. And so it's just really empowering. Yeah. Um, trying to think. We have a podcast, Stop Suffering in Silence. Um, yeah. Oh, and we're going to be starting. This is the last thing. We're going to be starting a uh, survivor book where the survivors get to write their story in a, in a chapter of the book and compile that together. So we're going to help walk them through that process. I love it. That's incredible. Amazing. It's all amazing. God is, is. so good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really amazing. Um, and I love you. You said it several times, turning uh, pain into purpose. And mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a uh, that's so incredibly powerful because all of us, none, none of us are, you know, well, many of us have not experienced what you experienced. You know, none of us are impervious to trauma and to suffering. That's a kind of one of the guarantees of life, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. And uh, if we can find something productive to do with it, then uh, we can we can help ourselves and help others. So, yeah, yeah. that's that's a, exactly. a beautiful thing to do for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for you, like for everything you're doing, for your vulnerability, for your courage uh, in this fight and uh, for all that you're doing. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add? Please do. Well, yeah. No, not really. I think it's just so cool how our paths crossed. Uh-huh, yeah. And then, and then <laughs> now we're here doing this and I think we'll see each other more with other so events and stuff. It's just been really neat to get to be a part of some of the things you're starting. So thank you thank for letting you. me be on here. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And I agree. I think this is the, the beginning of much more to come. So I look forward to it for sure. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And to be continued, I'll let you know when this comes out. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll be in touch in the future. Tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support you and your foundation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, our organization, the website is stopsuffering.org. And um, there's links there where if you feel led to donate to help a survivor with the retreat or um, you want to learn more about our programs, that's where you can go. I also just recently started racheltimothy.com and have started to create some things on there as well just for myself. But um, yeah, so those are both places you can connect with me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.